Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Today we have a really special episode. The Breakpoints team is joining up with our emergency medicine and intensive care unit pharmacist colleagues who are out there on the front lines taking care of patients infected with SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Even though this is one of the worst infectious diseases-related pandemics in history, there is currently no antiviral or immunomodulatory agent proven effective for the treatment of COVID-19. Our emergency medicine and ICU colleagues are absolutely essential in providing the critical supportive care that these patients need, and I'm so thankful for their time today. So without further ado, let me introduce our amazing guests. First, I have Dr. Jenny Kale, who's an emergency medicine pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Jenny, say hey to our audience. Hey, Erin. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, and hi, everyone. I'm really excited to kind of share what emergency medicine pharmacists are doing on the front lines and really how MGH has responded to the pandemic so far. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for your time. And then next, I have Dr. Corinne Berger. She is a neurocritical care pharmacist at New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. Corinne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me and greetings from New York City. Excited to share our perspective with everybody. And then last but certainly not least, Dr. Karen Dorr, who's an ICU pharmacist at Valley Medical Center, um, which is an acute care community hospital affiliated with the University of Washington Medicine in Renton, Washington. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Having me, Erin, and hi to everybody listening. Thank you. And so, guys, it's been a been a heck of a month, huh? Anyone else feel like March 2020 was the longest year of their life? I would definitely say so. Um, I was working with a resident the other day, and he asked me, "Oh, do you remember the first day we worked together when we had our first patient?" And my immediate answer was no, because it seemed like forever ago. And it really, it took me a moment to actually recall what happened. Yeah, I'm sure now you've taken care of, I mean, dozens or even hundreds of patients since that first patient that I'm sure does seem like forever ago. You and your colleagues, I mean, you guys have been in the thick of this for the longest with the first COVID-19 patient in the United States being diagnosed in Washington state, of course. So now that you've been able to reflect, can you tell our audience a little bit more about what that first patient was like? Yeah, sure. So thinking back to it, let's see, we're uh, almost at the end of April now. This was back in mid-February. Um, and we, we had a patient come in um, with respiratory distress, uh, you know, not much backstory. I think he collapsed out in the field um, and was admitted to the hospital. Uh, he was here for, I don't know, about a week or so um, with ongoing respiratory distress and like all of a sudden, I think it was like, you know, seven to 10 days into the admission, um, had increasing O2 requirements and needed transfer to the ICU. Um, he was eventually intubated. He was really sick, but it was really unclear to us why, because it didn't fit the picture of a bacterial infection um, or any other sort of respiratory thing that we could think of. Um, we knew that um, this uh, COVID-19 infection was becoming more of an issue. We had hear, heard about the patients at the Life Care Center um, that our colleagues were taking care of. And there were suspicions that perhaps this patient um, was uh, one of those patients as well. But at the time, there were restrictions on tests. Uh, so we couldn't test the patient because they didn't meet the criteria. I think at the time, um, you had to have travel uh, to China within the past 14 days um, or have 
had contact with somebody. Um, so we had to wait. And as soon as the restrictions were lifted, uh, we sent the test out. Um, and I remember it was, I think it was on a weekend in the morning when it went out. Um, and we're all really anxious because we knew that this was pending and we knew um, this could be something really big when the results returned. Um, and when they did come back, I think it was like in the middle of the night on like Saturday or Sunday. So I came into work that weekend, you know, with the night pharmacist having this big announcement that the test had actually come back positive. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Like we didn't really know what that meant um, or how, how it would change things or how we would need to react to it. Wow. That's, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's, kind of chilling to hear now, honestly, because it's like, wow, we've learned so much in two months and to think about that first moment though. So thank you so much for sharing that. Jenny, what about you? Do you mind sharing your first patient experience? To be honest, I don't truly remember our first patient, but what I do remember is in late January and February when we'd have our first group of patients that would come in in respiratory distress and you know, we thought it was the flu or RSV, so we would run our um, viral panel and they were all most of them were negative and they all had more gastrointestinal symptoms and we just didn't really understand what was happening, but we just figured it was some other virus. And so we would just help them, give them support that we could. And what I think that's what really taught us is if the pieces don't fit to really step back and just kind of think is something else going on. And really that's what's been most kind of meaningful to me. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I know we actually kind of had a similar experience and then even progressed to the point where we're not, we weren't even sending RSV or influenza or respiratory viral panels anymore because we're trying to preserve collection media and, and testing equipment. Um, and so super interesting as that evolved. And so going from that first experience to now, now you know that this virus is the most common thing you're seeing in the emergency department. What do your patient care days look like now and how have they evolved over the pandemic and maybe maybe Karen maybe we can go back to you and then Jenny can come in with how how things have evolved over time. So before the pandemic um, as an ICU pharmacist um, I was responsible for a 30-bed unit um, which includes mostly medical ICU patients and some neuro. Um, since we live in Washington we have prescriptive authority protocols so pharmacists are in charge of um, antibiotic dosing, anticoag, so heparin, warfarin, um, anything in that vein. Um, we do pain management and, and a few other things. Um, so those are our main responsibilities throughout the day. We round, um, we answer drug information questions, precept residents and students, um, which is pretty typical across the board, um, I would say. So how things have changed um, with the pandemic is we first uh, expanded our ICU beds um, from 30 beds, adding about 10 additional beds um, in, a, in a PACU type area to accommodate um, the influx of patients. Um, in those new beds that we've created, we reserve those for uh, patients with lower acuity, but still having ICU needs. So things like uh, DKA or people who are post-op um, vascular and cardiac surgery. And so the more acute cases in the COVID patients will come to the normal ICU where we've always had those patients. 
um, something that's changed for the workflow um, hospital-wide is that we have about uh, five people working on clinical issues for the entire hospital. Uh, I have one partner who I trade off with on a monthly basis. So there are two ICU pharmacists um, for our hospital. And along with a, a clinical coordinator, our ID and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist, um, our director and our operations manager, um, we are the point people for developing protocols and dealing with medication shortages um, and getting all the information out to the team to take care of these patients. Wow, that's super interesting to hear how your hospital had to rearrange units. I know that happened at my hospital as well, but kind of on a different scale and to hear your core pharmacy team and how all of you are used to doing many, many things um, in the community settings. That's really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that with us. So Corinne, let's switch over to you. Um, New York, of course, started seeing cases after Washington State, but now your state has become the epicenter of the global pandemic, and your hospital is also a larger academic setting. So what's different there? How have your days evolved, and how are they similar or different to Karen's? So my typical day is pretty similar in the sense that I'm still rounding, reviewing drug shortage documents and protocols. The difference is that everything I'm doing is just all COVID. So I changed from a um, neuro ICU pharmacist to basically a COVID NICU pharmacist. And now I'm cross covering multiple teams, just getting used to some of the teams, you know, it's a new attending physician, new nurses. So just trying to understand the team dynamic. Some of the things that are different, probably from a community setting, I think we're really lucky in my healthcare system because we have a lot of resources and I work with a lot of different critical care pharmacists. So we have a big group that's able to, you know, sort of review and turn around these documents pretty quickly and also for drug procurement. So because we have a big healthcare system, if one campus is out of one drug, we can borrow a loan from another campus. So I, I think we're really lucky in that regard. Jenny, how about you? I guess I would just say the biggest differences are that we're really not seeing our bread and butter emergency medicine patients anymore. Like, I don't know where the patients are that are having heart attacks or abdominal pain because we're really, truly only seeing COVID patients, which is a very different experience. And because we really cleared out the hospital and canceled all elective surgeries, we have a lot of open beds. And so our patients are moving from the ED to the inpatient floor incredibly quickly. And so uh, there's really no boarding in the ED anymore. As far as our day-to-day, -day, we always start every shift with patient care rounds on the most acute patients, and that hasn't changed. But in addition to kind of our normal rounds, we now have a member of our administrative staff that now comes and gives us updates on any changes to like our ventilation strategies, our treatments, our PPE, testing criteria, things like that. And that's really, I would say, been a huge help for us all to stay up to date because you know, our inboxes are flooded with things now and it's hard to get through them and it's really given us a chance to ask questions and get answers right there. So that's been a huge help. As far as practice, really the only difference is we always have intubation medications ready at any time of day just because these patients can crash so quickly once they hit the door. Yeah, man, I can't even imagine how that is. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's start with the PPE comment. So we have read about PPE shortages. We see this in the news. This is an extremely dire situation in certain parts of the country and protecting our healthcare workers is essential. So how are your hospitals dealing with the PPE issue? 
Um, I can kind of start. So our PPE requirements and guidelines from the hospital have obviously evolved over this pandemic with CDC recommendations and supplies. Um, thankfully, we obviously are a large academic center, and so we we have a pretty robust um, PPE um, storage. However, we we're running out of our N95s. And so something um, that we've done, we've actually developed a center that radiates our um, N95 masks. And so at the end of the shifts, the providers write um, their department and name on the outside of the mask in a Sharpie and put it into a tub that goes to the radiation center. And then within a couple of days, the mask is then returned to the same provider. Um, and so that's really helped us conserve our N95 masks. And so now we have a pretty um, healthy supply that's just kind of regenerating itself. Wow. How many times can they be radiated and reused? Do you know? Uh, that I don't. <laughs> um, Interesting. I'm, I'm guessing they're probably just testing them as they go. I'm honestly not too sure about that. Very interesting. Corinne, what about you? Um, we're lucky in that we didn't run out of PPE, but... Um, when everything first went down, I know we definitely had a shortage of N95s. And so we were really limiting who went into patient rooms. We had to make a tough decision for the clinical pharmacists who have always been part of the multidisciplinary team to continue rounding, but not go into patient rooms. Um, for a while, it was just really the nurse and maybe the attending or fellow going in. We were relying on the nurse for exams. Um, we were reusing N95 masks. There was a lot of debate about whether, even if you were just in the ICU, you should just wear a surgical mask or an N95. People would wear N95s with a surgical mask or something covering it. I think now we're much luckier and we have better supplies. Uh, but I think the most interesting part is just how the PPE guidance really changed day to day. Uh, and I think a lot of that was just dependent on what supplies we had. Yeah, it seems like everything changes day to day in this and keeping up with it can be tough. And um, I think the other important thing, Jenny, that you mentioned is how critically ill patients with COVID-19 become and how quickly their clinical status can turn for the worst, which is terrifying. So what strategies have your teams implemented to identify this precipice in the disease course, if it's even possible to identify? And then what treatment strategies are you utilizing in these critically ill patients? It's kind of interesting kind of hearing what hospital hospital is doing as far as in their crashing patients. I know there's a lot of discussion on whether or not intubating early is the right move or kind of giving the patient time, proning them, seeing if they improve. And there's a lot of discussion about whether or not these low oxygen saturations are actually accurate because a lot of people say that the patients look good even though their sats are quite low. Um, at MGH, we've really gone with the intubate early strategy. So if anyone's coming in with sats in low 90s, high 80s, and are on any, I'd say above like four liters um, oxygen, we're just gonna intubate them early because we've seen them just crash so fast and oftentimes we don't have the time later to do it. Um, and we've honestly seen good results with our intubate early uh, practice, but it's really helpful seeing the papers and the data that's coming out of hospitals with other methods as well. But that's our strategy as of now. Yeah, uh, that's interesting to see uh, on the ED side. I guess when we're um, thinking about the ICU side, when we're ready to extubate, we initially did see quite a few reintubations. And so I think now, even though it's really difficult to sort of predict who's going to fly and uh, who's going to require reintubation, uh, it's made us a little more conservative. 
with the decision to extubate. And we're also seeing a lot more um, prophylactic steroid use to prevent post-extubation stridor. So, you know, we used to just do this for high-risk patients. Now we're really giving uh, almost everybody, at least in my unit, a couple doses of either methylpred or dex before extubation. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, you guys. It's really interesting to learn this. And Corinne, I know you mentioned earlier that you said now you're a COVID pharmacist, you used to be a neuro ICU pharmacist, and now you feel like you're a COVID pharmacist. And I think we all feel that to a degree. I know I definitely do. I think everyone in healthcare does, since these are our most common and, and most critical patients right now. So it's something where we all have to become specialists in, and we all need to share it with each other and learn from these experiences. So this, you guys explaining all this is so helpful. Um, and Karen had also mentioned a role in developing COVID-related treatment protocols earlier, which I imagine all three of you have played a role in at your respective institutions. So can you tell me more about how pharmacists are helping patient care teams in this capacity? And then Jenny, you had said something too about email overload, and I definitely feel that right now. So how you're educating about these protocols, since we all are getting so many emails. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to start us off. I think there are probably a few different arms. So there's some of the treatment algorithms that have been developed, and then there's also drug shortage pathways. So every time a new drug goes on shortage, uh, really getting that information out and providing quick alternatives. So my team kind of laughs because one day may be a fentanyl day. So sorry, guys, today we have fentanyl. All new opioid starts are going to be fentanyl. And the next day we may switch over, and the same goes with lots of our other infusions. Some of the other guidelines we help are in teaching and training. So a lot of our non-critical care clinical pharmacists have now become uh, critical care pharmacists. So we put together some training materials and led a few Q&A sessions. Um, we think that was really helpful. We tried to pull up some cases to sort of show some of the things that we looked at. So aside from just the treatment protocols, it's looking at the drug shortage alerts, some of the other teaching materials, some of the cheat sheets for the team and things like that. So at our institution, we uh, as critical care pharmacists have been working really closely with ID and antimicrobial stewardship in addition to our cl clinical coordinator who have been developing. They're mostly responsible for developing the protocols and we on the front lines are more involved with communicating this information and really encouraging providers to choose what we have available. We're, you know, we have fentanyl days and we have dilated days, <laughs> just like you do. But the, you know, that's the, the the main role that we've taken on in terms of protocol development. And we're so lucky to have um, ID pharmacists and our clinical coordinator, who's very on top of monitoring stock, um, checking the wholesaler um, multiple times an hour to see what's available to make sure that we've got what we need on hand. Yeah, in the ED, we don't obviously see a whole lot of kind of the treatment protocols, but I know we have kind of an extensive group of clinical trials going on. But one thing that we have done in the ED is we've really expanded our meds to go program. So this was a program that we recently developed so that we dispense complete courses of antibiotics and steroids as well as starter packs of DOACs from the emergency department. Um, and initially, this program was really just intended for patients who are either homeless or uninsured or unable to access the medications. But obviously, we don't want our COVID positive or COVID at risk patients going out into the community, going to the pharmacies. And so we've expanded it to allow um, these to go packs to be given to these patients as well. So that's one thing that we've developed in the emergency department. 
Okay, one other thing I forgot to mention is we also um, developed like medication administration guidelines. So uh, basically just discontinuing all non-essential medications or, or recommending that those be discontinued uh, and trying to minimize administration times. So our nurses have been great about retiming meds, but if we can change meds to be daily or twice daily instead of three or four times a day and things like that, we've developed some guidance for that. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's one way that ID pharmacists and antimicrobial stewardship teams can help out our emergency medicine and our ICU colleagues. I know at my hospital, we recreated our recommendations for empiric and definitive antibiotics. And we had to think and break out what um, persons under investigation would look like versus a confirmed COVID-19. At the beginning of this, our laboratory staff was limiting certain lab draws because if there weren't appropriate protective hoods in the laboratory, then they weren't centrifuging, centrifuging blood samples. And so we had to be really creative with therapeutic drug monitoring. And um, so I know that was a huge role that our, our stewardship team had. Certain things like recommendations for azithromycin and doxycycline and things that we maybe used to recommend Ampsil Bactam for, we were more lenient on allowing or approving ceftriaxone requests because it's once a day. We actually switched a lot of our ICUs to continuous infusions of beta-lactam. So instead of giving Zosin Q6, we were giving it 18 grams over 24 hours, cefepime 6 grams over 24 hours, um, things like that. So we tried to be as flexible as possible. And, and knowing that the guidance we put out today could very likely change tomorrow and everyone being patient with each other about that and flexible about these things. And we all know that when you post a guideline, that's not always the most effective means of education, right? Because we're changing things so constantly. We're putting out these guidelines, we post them, and then who knows if people read them. So that brings me to my next question is what are you guys doing in addition to written documents to to communicate this ever-evolving clinical data and practice changes? So in addition to uh, kind of protocols and guidelines that are being developed and dispersed um, just kind of through emails, the emergency department also has a multidisciplinary by, I guess it's a weekly Zoom call where we talk about interesting COVID patient cases, how we handled them, as well as any updates to how we're managing these patients, how we're really thinking about the disease state, because I know there's a lot of discussion going around about do we intubate early, do we not intubate early, and discussions about like anticoagulation issues, things like that. So it's a really interesting conversation with our physicians, our PAs, our pharmacists, and really everyone's involved, which, um, which I've really enjoyed. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jenny. I know anticoagulation is a hot topic right now. It seems like there's more data coming out on this every day. We're even having discussions locally and, in, and internationally about adding heparin into adaptive clinical trial platforms or treatment docinoxaparin for these patients. So what are your current anticoagulation strategies? Uh, we haven't really changed our prophylactic anticoagulation other than in larger patients, we'll do um, like Q12-hour dosing. What we have changed in the emergency department, we noticed that in the ICUs, a lot of our arterial lines that you place in the ED were clotting. And so we've asked our residents to place larger bore lines in our patients. Um, we've also done a lot more scanning if the D-dimer is higher than we would expect for COVID. So we're seeing a lot more like 8,000, 9,000 D-dimers. And so now we're actually looking for like real clots in these patients and not just assuming it's COVID. Um, other than that, we have not changed much. Um, we are adding more heparin to our ECMO circuits because those are clotting off more as well. But other than that, not a lot of huge changes. 
Um, our guideline has changed quite a bit over the past few weeks. So I think initially we, uh, our biggest transition was moving patients from sub-Q heparin to sub-Q Lovenox, but that was more as a dose reduction strategy to help nurses not go into the room as often. Based on some anecdotal reports and um, like you mentioned, seeing that lines were clotting off and a lot of these patients were developing DVTs and PEs, we decided to increase our strategy. So one of our campuses actually just stayed at a standard prophylaxis, maybe a little bit higher dosing in patients with obesity or move, maybe moving to Lovenox 30Q12. Uh, one of our other sites, the campus I'm on, we changed to Lovenox half a mg per kilo Q12 um, for patients without AKI. And then patients with AKI could either get higher dose heparin, like 7,500 Q8, um, if there was any suspicion for a PE, like the patient desat or just a very low threshold, maybe their D-dimer went up, their vent settings changed, we, we had a very low threshold to start them on full-dose anticoagulation. Some of our units are empirically starting full-dose anticoagulation. Some areas are doing the half a mg per kilo, and then we'll do anti-factor 10A monitoring and target uh, certain levels, but... Um, we were a little nervous to go to full-dose anticoagulation. We thought standard was too low, and that's what led us to the half-dose. Um, the one patient population where we're seeing more anticoagulation is patients who are on CVVH, because those lines, um, even with in-circuit heparin, are just clotting off, and a lot of those patients are requiring heparin drips. Interesting. That's so crazy. And then of course, for me as an ID pharmacist, I'm like, man, and then you never know when the CVVH is running and then you never know how to dose anything. And we are consistently trying to figure this out. So let's go to another controversy then. What about corticosteroids? Corinne, you mentioned briefly that you're using them pre-extubation, but in general, what's the sense of corticosteroid use? Can I add just one more thing? Because um, you mentioned antibiotic dosing. So we have- Oh yeah, I can talk about antibiotic dosing all day. <laughs> um, <I can. laughs> we have such a shortage of dialysis machines. So we've had patients where we've rotated, um, they may just get CVVH for 12 hours and then rotate off. Or we started some patients now on peritoneal dialysis. Some patients will get switched from HD to CVVH. Um, the lines will clot. So between the shortage, the lines clotting, and all the different dialysis regimens we've been doing, uh, antibiotic dosing, and dosing of everything has been a little bit of a gamble lately. Wow, that's crazy. Is there anyone that kind of, I mean, I get you can't even protocolize that, right? You're just having to assess the patient every single day? We do, yeah. It depends on the severity of their illness. If it's something like Vanco, where we can monitor a little bit more closely, uh, we try to do that. But for other antibiotics like cefepime, miropenem, sometimes we will go in the middle or we'll change it day by day. So interesting. It's crazy and underscores the importance of the pharmacist's role in, in monitoring these patients, honestly, because that's extremely complicated. Um, okay, well, you can't avoid the question though. Nice try. But I, I mean, you distracted me very appropriately with antibiotic dosing, but corticosteroids, guys. I mean, we're studying, I'll say UPMC stances, we're studying it in the context of a clinical trial. Anyone else doing anything differently? So <laughs> our thoughts on steroids have evolved like everything else. We go back and forth. I think there are a few indications where we have pretty good consensus. Uh, stress dose steroids for patients who are on multiple pressors, so hydrocort 100Q8 or 50Q6, it's pretty well accepted by most areas. Some, some uh, units have not wanted to use steroids at all, but I would say most areas are agreeable to that. Um, 
the pre-extubation strider regimen, a lot of people are doing that. So something like methylpred 40Q6 for four or five doses or DEX 5Q8 for a few doses. Um, certainly for patients who have COPD and are being treated for a COPD exacerbation, we'll do prednisone or methylprednisone, uh, methylprednisone for five days, and then someone who has an asthma exacerbation will treat with methylpred. So those are the more well-accepted regimens. I would say the two sort of controversies we have are the steroids and ARDS, and certainly COVID ARDS, and then steroids for potential cytokine release syndrome. We uh, initially weren't using steroids as much. I think now that we've become a little bit more comfortable with these patients, also for lack of really anything better to do, we've started seeing more use of steroids and we're generally doing anything from one mg per kilo of methylpred per day, uh, either as a single dose or usually divided up Q12 um, if we're just doing ARDS. And then we'll sometimes do a little bit higher dosing if we're doing for cytokine release syndrome. So if those um, labs are uptrending, the ferritin, CRP, D-dimer, we may do something closer to two mg per kilo per day. Um, or some people I think are doing DEX anywhere from 10 to 20 milligrams per day. But I will say it's a little bit service and attending dependent, patient dependent, where they are in their course. Um, so I don't think we've really protocolized it in a way that um, I could really tell you if, if I think it's working or not yet. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's super valuable insight. It's absolutely controversial. Not only do we not know an optimal dose, like you said, or which that's, I think that's the key message in all of this is we don't know which agents are effective, if any, and if there are, we don't know the right dose. And then we don't know when in the course of disease is the optimal time to initiate treatment. And we talked about that before with when patients get critically ill and hit this precipice is like, do you give drugs if before that? Do you give it after that? We um, have a lot to learn. I think we've said, I've heard people say this and I keep saying it, but COVID's a really humbling disease. I think we're all learning a lot every single day. Data evolve daily, characteristics are evolving. And uh, I mean, Jenny, you had mentioned earlier about you know reading data from other centers and around the world, which is what we're all doing. But even then it's the same disease, but those patients and those demographics may not necessarily reflect the patient populations you're seeing. So it's a lot. It's a lot to keep up with. Uh, so let's move into data then. We've mentioned data a lot, but how, dare I ask this question, it's overwhelming, but how are your teams staying on top of all these data? And what are your strategies for communicating and assessing data as you're watching your own patients too and mirroring that with your clinical experience? That's, that's quite, quite the challenge <laughs> um, to keep up with, with, with what's going on out there. And I don't know how your um, provider structure works at your institution, but we we change intensivists every about every week. So each time somebody comes in with new information, it's really interesting to see what what people know and to learn from them what they've picked up. You know what um, solutions they're trying. You know we have had people get a little bit more aggressive with anticoagulation, higher doses of DVT prophylaxis. We had a patient who was actually on full dose anticoagulation. They kept clotting off their lines. So they felt at that time that was appropriate for that patient, um, which is, you know, it's interesting to see that actually being put into practice. Yeah, I was waiting to hear if someone else maybe had a good solution to this. You know, right now we have like our two main campuses, Columbia and Cornell, as well as all of our regional sites um, that sort of operate under one umbrella. We're pretty lucky in that early on we identified sort of COVID 
you know, MICU champions who sort of drove some of those initial protocols with intubations and, you know, which drugs we were going to utilize. Our ID team got together and, and sort of provided us an algorithm for who was going to get which agents. I will say we struggle a little bit with the day-to-day because now that we've opened more ICUs, so some of our PACU, OR, step-down floor areas are ICUs, the attendings are switching even more frequently. And many of these attendings are new intensivists or hospitalists or attendings that maybe have um, generously come from San Francisco or other areas of the country and state. So we do struggle with this, but I think having, you know, sort of a primary COVID team that can help drive some of those, those algorithms allows us to try to stay on the same page. Every now and then we do see teams wanting to do different things with anticoagulation, with steroids, et cetera. Yeah, and we talked about all of the clinical controversies surrounding anticoagulation and steroid use earlier and the evolving knowledge of optimal care of these patients. So it's definitely a challenge. I think it's important that we acknowledge that and that we support each other, that we're all just doing our best. And then to add another layer of complexity of like all these controversial data, as we briefly discussed already, we're constantly assessing and mitigating drug shortages. So we might decide a drug is good and then we don't have it. So how are you guys dealing with supply issues? Well, you know, I think we've been lucky because we've been able to keep some supply of some drugs in every class. So we've never completely run out of fentanyl or Dilaudid or cisatricurum or rocuronium. You know, I think if I had advice to give, (laughs) I would say restrict earlier. It may seem like you have such an overwhelming supply, but once these patients start coming in, it's almost unbelievable how fast you run through drugs even as an ICU pharmacist, we've just never, ever seen anything like it. So potentially having small work groups for different items. So what you're going to do with MDI inhalers, have a work group come up with a plan and alternatives quickly for that and restrict it with a small group of people that are approval sources. You know, hopefully your C-suite or leadership can get behind that. But I think if you don't restrict early on, because maybe you think you have the comfort of a lot of drugs, you'll, you'll come to learn that those drugs run out pretty quickly. Yeah, I would agree that restriction is a huge component. So like in RED, we only give albuterol inhalers to patients that have COVID or at risk because we don't want to use the nebulizers. Another huge piece I would say is to communicate with different floors. So a big problem that we found was in the ED, we would put patients on fentanyl drips. And then as soon as they got to the ICU, they would throw away the fentanyl and then start the hydromorphone drips. And so that was a complete waste. And so really communicating, can you guys not throw away the fentanyl, not waste the drug, or should we switch to hydromorphone? And so really just making sure that everyone is on the same page to lead to less waste. Yeah, we've actually also gotten really creative about decreasing waste with trying to extend some of our um, beyond use dating, changing the lines less frequently. Can Can I ask a controversial question? That interestingly, I get asked randomly because I think people think it leads to raging infection. So they, they tag me in because of ID. So propofol, we used to change every 12 hours, right? Are you guys doing it every 24? How, how, how long can we push propofol? So we did just recently move to every 24 hours. You know, we didn't make that decision lightly. And I think it was really a decision of whether we could run out of propofol, but keep the 12 hours. And, you know, when they, they're they changing out these lines, if there's still almost a full vial in there, that vial is going to be tossed out as well. 
We just said for the time being, it may not be standard of care, but we'd rather kind of reserve the drug and and sort of take that risk. So we did recently go to 24 hours. Um, We haven't gone to 24 hours yet, but I know it's something that's under review and up for consideration. We've been priming the lines with the small vials to decrease the amount of waste from the large 100 mil vials, um, because I think we, we're using the extension set MRI tubing in addition to the regular set, and I think there's about a little bit less than 40 mils worth of volume in the tube, so it can lead to substantial waste. So we've just started that. I'm not sure how it's going just yet, but that's a new initiative we've just taken on in the last week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to be forgiving with each other, right? Like, these aren't times that we can do things absolutely perfectly like we want to and um, having to make these really, really hard decisions of this isn't optimal or this isn't what I thought we would be doing right now, but it's what we kind of have to do right now. So along with that, in order to continue to do the best thing we can for our patients when we're having to make decisions very quickly with rapidly evolving data and getting creative with working with what we have, to do that successfully often requires really strong team dynamics, right? And these are really tough times and you're taking care of really, really sick patients and a lot of really sick patients. So what's worked for you guys in terms of team dynamics? What I know, especially, you know, the non-critical care staff may be getting flexed. If units are closing to open up for other units, maybe nursing staff is shifting around. You're saying physicians are working in positions that they may not be used to covering or patient populations they may not be used to covering working remotely is tough. How have you guys been handling some of those things and what's really helped in terms of team dynamics? Yeah, we've had at MGH, we've had a ton of ICUs open. And so a lot of non-critical care pharmacists are covering these units. And even our pediatric ICU turned into adult. We transferred all of our pediatric patients out of MGH. And so all of our pediatric pharmacists and are covering adult patients, which is probably incredibly uncomfortable. They're seeing huge dosing of medications that they've never verified before. So our um, clinical director has been really awesome and does these Zoom teaching calls. Um, He used to be an ICU pharmacist. And so the last one was on mechanical ventilation. And he just kind of went through the the dynamics of it, what to look for, what to do, um, how to really monitor the patient each day. Um, So that's been really helpful. And I think everyone's just been really open with communication when they don't know something. And we've had a lot of documents, training documents just kind of sent around, um, which has been great. Yeah, I think if you're able to identify whoever the key stakeholders are in that new area that you're going to be covering or rounding in. So if there's a medical director or a temporary attending, a nursing director, just to understand, you know, how rounds are going to go. And particularly if you're teleconferencing or zooming in, you know, is it best to leave a few minutes at the end of each patient for you to sort of run through the pharmacy recommendations? Can you get the phone number of each of the residents who's putting in orders and maybe you can text them so that you have people to follow up with um, because that can be a struggle. If you can try to uh, make rounds a little bit systematic so that you can ensure that you're discussing sedation and rascals paralysis for each patient so that you have some dedicated time to make those interventions. I think that helps if you can set that up up front rather than trying to battle it each day with someone new and uh, for each new patient. Being in constant communication with with everybody on the team is really important. Um, We're lucky because we're a pretty small institution. Um, We all know each other. We all have personal relationships, but to 
um, be able to inform um, nursing staff, for instance, about you know experimental drugs or studies when they don't necessarily understand um, what they're for, um, makes them you know informed and and dedicated to what they're doing. Um, having a personal discussion, maybe with the intensivist, about switching over to different um, pain and sedation agents. Um, I guess that's our method for uh, working with drug shortages since we don't have a huge team to implement and enforce restrictions. But just making sure that everybody is involved and everybody knows what you're doing and why it's important to you really, really helps keeps things moving. And are you guys working completely kind of remotely from different parts of the hospital and, and zooming in to speak with your care teams? Or are you still on the floors rounding? How's that working? Are you seeing patients? What's what's the sense from patients that have this disease? If they're able to talk to you, like what? I can't even imagine being in isolation and having people come in and unbelievable amounts of PPE and not being able to have visitors. And what's that sense kind of like for taking care of your patients? Yeah, that part is is probably the worst part for me. We are doing some remote and some in-house we, we restricted our visitor policy so that there's essentially no visitors except for very, very specific circumstances, uh, even in the ICUs. So we try as much as possible to use iPads to help families FaceTime with their loved ones and try to explain things. But we do sometimes see a lot of delirium, especially as we start waking these patients up. You know, unfortunately, they've, they may have been on benzo infusions, which we normally don't use, but in the case of a shortage or just in the case of uh, how amazingly high their sedation requirements are, we, we've had to turn to those. So it's, it's definitely not been ideal. As a pharmacy group, we have not been going into the patient rooms. We've tried to really minimize that, uh, not just even just minimizing the nurse going into the room as, as little as possible to do what's necessary to take care of the patient. The attending and maybe the fellow will go in but it's, it's definitely a lot less. And when the patient does see you, they see you in all kinds of weird looking masks and goggles and face shields. Um, and they see a group of people that are almost not identifiable as medical professionals. So I, I would imagine that's pretty scary for the patients. And I, I've seen other patients on the weekends, I cover clinical shifts and the visitor restriction policy is for everyone. We're not allowing visitors um, Similarly, unless the circumstance is very special, but I've talked to regular medical patients um, doing pain consults or med recs or that sort of thing, and it's, it's really upsetting to them to not have their family around or have people be able to come visit them. Even if they're not COVID patients, there are other patients out there still recovering from you know, whatever brought them in, and this affects them as well. And I will say it also, it also really impacts kind of the family members. So for example, last night in the ED, we terminally extubated a patient and we called his wife and told her what we were doing. And she chose not to come in and say her goodbyes just because she was scared and nervous that she might get infected from coming into the ED. And so I think it's both incredibly hard on the patients as well as incredibly a hard decision on the family members. And that was really eye-opening to me. Man, I can't even imagine what that is like. It's, this is incredibly difficult for everyone involved, patients, their families, their friends, the entire healthcare team. And you guys are doing this patient after patient, day after day. And we focus solely on taking care of our patients because that's what we're trained to do. But we have to remember to take care of each other too. 
So we know that healthcare workers are at high risk of getting infection, of course, and we need to physically and then mentally protect each other. So how are you guys taking care of yourselves and taking care of your teams? Well, we've had a lot of free food, which has been really nice. And these wellness carts that come around with snacks, people give each other shout outs. I think overall, we're trying to just have patience with each other. Um, we're working with new people, um, and this is not the time to sort of be OCD about every order. I think residents will appreciate you sort of focusing on the major issues and, and teaching them enough for them to be able to sort of get through the day and manage their patients, um, but not taking up too much of their time. I think nurses are so appreciative of, you know, retiming meds and just helping decrease the number of meds or the number of checks they have to do. And just staying reasonable with everybody, uh, especially when we're practicing sort of in an era where there are no data-driven practices and, you know, trying to make it work together. This is an extremely gray area of medical practice, and it's super difficult to navigate this. So I think what you said about staying reasonable with everyone and reminding everyone you just appreciate all that they're doing is, it's amazing advice. It's, it's the best thing we can do for each other. Um, like, for example, right now, I mean, centers around the world are enrolling patients in clinical trials to receive hydroxychloroquine. My hospital um, and my system is doing that as well. And so when you're giving critically ill patients hydroxychloroquine, it came up about whether or not we can crush the tablets. So hydroxychloroquine is a very old drug. The package insert is very old, and it says don't crush the tablet because the tablet's film coated. Well, I mean, is that because it tastes bad? Is that because it's caustic powder and hurts people? Like, does it cause harm? Or is it just hard to crush because it has this film coating? Uh, like, we had to dig into these kind of literature, and this is something I never thought I'd be exploring as an ID pharmacist. And we know you can dissolve it because you can create a suspension. And so we know it's immediate release. And so our team went ahead and made the call that we would allow straight up bedside crushing but these are, again, these are decisions and conversations we weren't ever expecting to have. And at the same time, though, this is what we do every single day in medicine. We synthesize the available data and we make the best team-based decision for our patients. And so it's particularly unique now, and everyone's working a bit outside their comfort zone, as you have mentioned. Um, but pharmacists and everyone and all members of the team are, are just stepping up and, and stepping into new roles. Yeah, I would say it's been really helpful. We've actually deployed our PGY2 emergency medicine resident Kate into essentially a full pharmacist position. So she's covering our shifts and we've also taken our ED observation unit pharmacist down to the ED. So each day we essentially have one EM pharmacist working from home. So we text each other every night and see how we're like physically and emotionally doing. And if someone's on the next day and exhausted, the person that's home steps in. And so there's a lot of kind of cycling through shifts and everyone's really stepped up to the plate and, and helped each other out in that respect. And it's been awesome. I'm so impressed with how well everybody has responded um, and how patient and gracious they've been to each other. We've had a lot of free food too. So it's, it's been amazing that we have such amazing support from the community. And it's, it's wonderful to feel appreciated like that. Um, as far as our department, we're a pretty small department and all of us are really close. So we'll be checking in with each other too, um, calling each other in the evenings to make sure everybody's okay. 
you know, doing little things to keep our minds off of it. We started a small appliance swap amongst the department. So if you've ever wanted to try an air fryer or something like that, um, everybody's offering that and cooking at home as so many people are, but just, you know, the little things that you can do to keep your, keep your home life sane. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hearing free food a lot. So noted, I'll send you guys all food after this as a thank you. But how else can people who aren't necessarily in ICUs or in the emergency department or who aren't on the front lines? um, And I think a lot of us who aren't, I mean, I'm not, I'll admit it. I, you know, am in my office and I feel like I just read and write guidelines, but um, sometimes it's like, man, you wish you could do more. I wish I knew how to intubate people, right? Like we all feel like we want to do more. So for those of us who are not, how can we help you and your patients other than clearly send you food? Um, I would say just check in, you know, I, I get a lot of texts and I'm always the one to be like, I'm fine, but phone calls, phone calls mean a lot. Right. And then you can actually like talk to the person and actually see how they're doing. And so that's been really um, helpful for me as well as people just being very responsive. And this, this is probably very much an emergency department thing, but like when you have questions, you need answers really quickly. And so everyone in the department has been super quick to respond to questions and really give their opinions right off the bat where before it would probably take more researching and time. Um, So that's been incredibly helpful to me. Yeah, one thing that we have done, this is still within New York, but some of our non-ICU pharmacists have been really great about helping us collate materials and make compatibility tables and identify information that they think would be helpful for teaching. So just helping offload some of our tasks onto them. And and they have just been awesome about helping us out. I think it would also be really nice. um, You know, Erin, you've done this with your review papers, um, but even having like data miners in each category, like anticoagulation, there are different opinions and studies ongoing. So having someone maybe responsible for you know, summarizing and, and providing a good blurb with all the data that you could just easily reach for, uh, steroids, vitamins, alternative therapy. Uh, a lot of us are trying to read the best we can or as much as we can, uh, but it's almost impossible to, to stay on top of everything. So we really appreciate, you know, there's a wealth of information. Sometimes too much information it becomes overload, but uh, if you have those people that could help summarize that so you really have it at your fingertips, I think that would be a tremendous help. Oh, that's a great idea. I was going to say something similar, just staying informed, even if that's not your main practice area, um, just knowing what you can and, and doing your best to find um, the most reliable information. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I know, um, I mean, professional societies and medicine have been amazing. So like Lancet, JAMA, uh, New England, all the major journals, all the COVID-related publications are free and open access during this time. ASHP made all the critical care modules for pharmacist certification free to everyone through May 31st. So if you weren't aware of that, check out the ASHP website. They have tons of free resources that they've opened up specific to COVID and to critical care. Um, SIDP, of course, is doing videos um, on the SIDP website for the different antiviral therapies that have been suggested and the data that exists. And we're doing the best we can, right? But at the end of the day, this is so hard, you guys, because there's not really any data to support any of these therapies outside of supportive care. And so it's just good critical care medicine at this point in time that's helping these people. Are you guys getting any other senses of anything that seems to be working or not working? I know talking anecdotes is a bit dangerous, but I trust your clinical gestalt here. 
Proning. <laughs> Proning elves. I really, I wish I could say that I have anecdotes or, or something, you know, encouraging that I've experienced, but, you know, I, we don't know. And so, you know, to reiterate what you said, Erin, the best thing we can do is good critical care medicine and good patient supportive care. Yeah, I'll echo that too. It's so hard to say because it's really anecdotal. Our unit's a little, one of the sicker units. So, you know, my experience would probably be different from someone else's experience as far as when we're implementing certain therapies. Uh, We are trying to push patients towards clinical trials as much as possible. So I, you know, think if you're at an institution that can do that or you can help at all in setting that up, that that's the way to go if possible. Yeah, it's tough, but Corinne, you're right. I mean, appreciating that at different sites, and and Karen, you can probably speak to this a little bit more, but it's not always easy, especially at community hospitals or smaller centers, or if you're not affiliated with with a larger academic center, to enroll patients in trials may be more difficult, but at the end of the day, there are no proven effective therapies, and the only way we're going to be able to provide optimal care for our patients now and in the future, because again, this is not the last time we're going to see a terrible virus, unfortunately, and we're probably in the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic for a bit longer. We're going to keep seeing more patients. Um, so the only way to set ourselves up the best we possibly can is to truly know what helps and honestly, more importantly, what might be hurting our patients, right? And so I think being patient with each other as we as we learn through this is, is very important. So speaking of learning through this, I guess I kind of want to end the podcast with that and hear your guys' thoughts on what you've learned along the way. So Karen, um, you've had the most experience of all of us, about four months now. Uh, Corinne, a little bit after, and Jenny, I know Boston was was not shortly after Washington. So what have you guys learned along the way? What do you want to share with our listeners? Valuable lessons. I, I think at this point, I mean, most people around the country are prepared and, and know, and this has hit every single state, but how can they get through if peaks haven't hit in their states and, and what are some valuable lessons? I think things today look really different than they did six weeks ago or so, but it didn't really happen overnight. We learn a little bit each day and every time we learn something, it's important to react to that and build uh, your next process based on what you learn. So it really is a gradual process, um, which is something I've learned along the way. I think that's important. I mean, you're not going to go from knowing nothing to knowing everything over overnight. And we learn something new with every single patient. And I think what we've learned is that this is not a textbook disease. Every single patient presents, there's characteristic landmark labs and symptoms. But as Jenny alluded to earlier, some patients just absolutely crash and we have no idea why. Young, healthy people come in and they're fine and then they crash. And then some people are elderly with risk factors and they go home and they're stable and they're fine. And so we're still, I, we just, there's so much we don't know. Yeah, Karen, to piggyback on that, I, th- I think you just have to be really adaptable and not just you yourself in the sense of, you know, you can throw a lot of the regulatory stuff out the window and some of the things that you are used to as your standard of care, but everything needs to be adaptable. Your IT systems, getting new order sets up, getting new protocols, you know, they're probably not going to go through the formal subcommittee, F&T, medical board approval. Things are just going to be rapidly changing. So figuring out what is a system within your organization that works to really uh, be flexible and, and update these things probably on a daily basis as needed. I agree. And I would say I've, I've personally never really had a, 
a real interest in disaster planning and response, but this has taught me so much about kind of what goes on behind the scenes and just the incredible multidisciplinary work that is needed for the response and really just how important members of the team as far as our cleaning crews, our transport members, our materials management, they are the ones that are really keeping the patients coming in and going out and they're so important and I don't think that they really got as much recognition as they should have before this, but they definitely will now and I really appreciate them so much. I would also say don't recreate the wheel. So we have really active Twitter members, discussion boards, listservs, podcasts, People have generated really good ideas and solutions. And so I think we can all borrow from each other and you know, not always start from zero, but have a much better starting point from others' experiences. Glad you mentioned that because something, another thing that I've learned from this experience is that reaching out to your community is really important. You know, talking to other institutions. I wasn't really big on Twitter before this, but I've I've really gotten into that now and I appreciate so much what everybody's been sharing about their experiences because we've definitely all learned from it. Yeah, I completely echo that. I know I talk to probably seven to 10 ID pharmacists from different institutions every day, just different things of, I know you're doing this or you see these patients more or what did you learn today? And and having the flexibility that you might put together a protocol today or decide something today based on the drugs you have and the patients you have and then know that tomorrow it can all like literally just throw that piece of paper out the window and you're like, everything we did yesterday, no longer relevant. Today is a new day. And every day is the same day because we don't even know what day of the week it is anymore. So that's been a huge something for me, at least, is being okay with that. And again, that patience and that kindness and that like just letting that go and and just picking up and doing it again because that's what needs done today and appreciating that new things evolve every day. So knowing that then, what's next, guys? I think it's helpful to kind of know that this may be our new normal for a while and uh, figure out ways to work within this setting, uh, get some rest, figure out, you know, if you are going to be working at least partly remotely, what that will look like. I think what was helpful for us is that we canceled a lot of our non-essential meetings, and then we added more frequent important meetings like clinical huddles and things like that. So uh, maybe some of that continues and you know, maybe your publication or some of your other projects take a little break for a while while you sort of adjust to what this new normal will look like. I completely agree with that. I think a lot of the meetings that have transpired out of this that are more frequent are incredibly helpful, like all of our multidisciplinary case conferences and really therapeutic discussions and talking about real life, what happened to your patient when we did this, and both in the ED, but as well as it involving the ICU because they see the end result of what we've done in the ED. And so kind of involving everyone in these discussions, I'm really hoping that continues in the future. I think the the shared experience over this time, people have somewhat gotten used to. So we've, you know, we've sort of adjusted to it and can come to terms with that and then, you know, build on, on this time that we've had. Well, thank you guys for sharing all that. Before we wrap up this podcast, are there any final thoughts, any, any last minute things you want to say to our audience? I guess I would just like to say thank you to everyone who is caring for these patients, both booths on the ground, as well as administrative, 
reading the papers, creating the guidelines, really your time and endless sacrifices are incredibly heroic and meaningful. And I appreciate every one of you. Yeah, I agree. We really felt so much love in New York City, all the texts and messages and the support has been so helpful. And I think my final thought would be just do your best. I think the standard that we hold ourselves to, not that it's a lower standard, but I think it's just a different standard. We're covering more patients and a higher acuity. I think we just have to do our best and, and sort of be okay with that if we can help as many patients as we can. Yeah, thank you to everybody who's been so supportive of um, essential workers and healthcare workers. I appreciate all of you and yeah, thanks. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you guys more than we can say. Thank you for your time tonight. I know you're all incredibly busy and tired, but hang in there. You're doing an amazing job. So again, for our audience tonight, I was joined by Dr. Jenny Kale, who's an emergency medicine pharmacist at Mass General in Boston, Dr. Corinne Berger, who's a neurocritical care pharmacist at New York Presbyterian in New York City, and Dr. Karen Doerr, an ICU pharmacist at Valley Medical Center, which is a community hospital affiliated with UW Medicine in Washington State. Um, you guys, you've been an amazing panel. I've learned a ton from you, and I really appreciate everything you're doing and your time. And with that, you are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you.